So tonight, Revelation chapter 21, picking up where we left off here is in verse 22, and it says this, But I saw no temple in it, the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And so, few things here. The nations of those who are saved are going to be the ones that are walking in that because we know that those nations that were not saved, they're now in the lake of fire. And so, judgment has taken place, and we are officially in, you might say, the Feast of Sukkot, what on earth it has been shadowing and you know, preparing us for is being lived out eternally here. Um, it, it just, it's impossible for us to understand this. It's amazing to me that it says there's no temple in it, and yet we have so much focus on this physical building of the temple We've talked about the third temple in the past and how we are that third temple. Yes, there will be a third temple built, you know, in the end times, a physical one, but that's not God's temple. We are God's temple. And the tabernacle, the temple that was there during the days of Solomon, and then later the second temple, and out in the wilderness, that was all foreshadowing not just a physical thing in the New Jerusalem. We talked about the New Jerusalem as a perfect cube, and that's the way the most holy place was. And it's easy for us to kind of remember, oh yeah, okay, so that tabernacle and the temple was a foreshadowing of this New Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Yes, it was, but again, there are many layers. I think the ultimate is this. You are that temple. That's why there's no temple here, because you're there. And that's beautiful. And I think we tend to always stay in the physical and forget the spiritual. Over Sukkot this year, we are going to talk about, as I've mentioned before, the tabernacle. And I'm going to go through that. And you're going to see there are three parts to the tabernacle, to the temple. And likewise, we are made in a trinity in the image of God with a body, a soul, and a spirit. And there's a reason for that. And so as we look at that temple, we need to remember that you are it. Look at what it says um, in John chapter 4, verse 21. It says, Believe me, woman, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, which uh, was uh, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, which would be Mount Zion. Now we think this new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven, and it seems to be to Mount Zion, but God is saying you're not going to worship here nor there. It's in this new temple. You see, you're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The building doesn't matter. We joke a lot. We say, you know, this Saturday night, Bible says, it's not a church, it's not a church, it's not a church. But let me tell you something, guys. You're the church. I don't care where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You are the church. And so, that is what God is, is the whole point of it, is to make you the church. You know, Ephesians tells us this, that we are being made as pillars in the temple of our God. You are part of the structure, the very foundation, the thing that holds everything up. You are a pillar in the temple of God. You know, being made one in Christ, it says. You know, we have different personalities. We have different 
characteristics, annoyances, um, giftings. We're all different, but we need each other. We are the body of Christ. And, you know, we, we see that in Corinthians talking about this body of Christ and how, you know, if one part of the body says, I don't need you, the whole body suffers. You get rid of one part of your body. I love that about the vestigial organs of evolution. They say you evolve these things and then you didn't need them anymore, so you lost them. So, you know, you're losing your pinky and they say your tonsils and the thalamus and uh, your little toe and all kinds of things. Or all these, you know, your appendix. There are no vestigial organs, not in science nor in the church of God. Every one of you is an integral part of the body of Christ. And just like in science, I mean, we have done damage. I was putting together a sign for the museum and talking about how doctors would take out things and, and radiate um, the thalamus gland because uh, a baby maybe would have an enlarged one. And we found out later that, oh, that's a good thing to have those. And so these kids in their teens and early 20s go through all kinds of trials and, and struggles. That you remove your appendix and, and it increases your chance of, chances of cancer of the ovary, cancer of the colon, Hodgkin's disease, leukemia. That the appendix was necessary. We just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we need those parts that are there just because we didn't know it. And let me tell you, maybe some of you don't know what your purpose is. But you have one. You might even look at your neighbor and say, I don't know what their purpose is, but they have one. <laughs> okay? We all have a purpose because we are the temple of God. And I love that. It's in the New Jerusalem that that's what Jesus was talking about, worshiping in spirit and truth. That at that point that we're all looking forward to, we're not going to worship because of a location or a building but because we are one in spirit. Going back to that dream that I told you that I had years ago where I saw Paul and Barnabas and Jesus, and uh, I feel like I experienced what it was to be one in Christ. I, I can't put it into words outside of that. I was one with Paul. I was one with Barnabas. I was one in the body of Christ. I knew them like they, you know, were my own body almost. It's just amazing how we get distracted by the physical in this world. And we look at each other as an individual that either is, you know, my peep or not my peep. You know, just we can relate to them or we can't relate to them. But we need to look at each other as Christ sees us through the body of Christ. To overlook one another's quirks. To embrace different personalities and, and qualities that they have. I mean, how many problems could be solved in the church if we could do that one thing? Not all of them would go away, but a lot. It's also interesting to me that there's no moon in verse 23. This, some translations kind of say there's no moon. Others kind of leave it like this in the New King James. The city had no need of the sun. So some say, it doesn't say it's not there, but there's no need for it. I kind of think that it's not there. Um, but I can say that during the millennial reign, we know that the, the lunar calendar is what all the biblical festivals and whatnot are based on. It seems to be there during the millennial reign, but when the new heavens and the new earth are created, the old heavens and earth pass away. We see that the kings also bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. I love that too. Guys, that means that there are positions of glory and honor that are being brought into the kingdom of God. We've talked about this many times in other parts of Scripture where we see that 
our works are going to go with us to heaven. I'm not working to be saved, but I am sending lumber on ahead. Here's just one more verse to support that very thing, that there are glories of heaven. And we see it in the parables where God says that, you know, uh, here are 10 talents and here's one talent and you invest them and the guy that just buries it doesn't, he's well, you get one city. Or, you know, you should have invested it and you don't get anything. But others, it's like you invested, so now I'm going give to give you double. We are to be investing in the kingdom of God right now because that's the glory you take with you into heaven as well. Again, not salvation, but glory and blessings from the things that we do in Christ. So, moving on here, I want to show you some verses in the Old Testament as well. Um, first of all, Isaiah 24, 23, The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Isaiah 24, 23. Then Isaiah 60, verse 19 and following, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, your God will be your glory, your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. So there will be no waxing and waning of the moon. If there is a moon, it's going to be a full moon. However, like I said, I kind of think that it's no more, but you could read this either way. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Last week we talked about the Bible. In Revelation, it just said that you were giving the light. Why? Well, just like what it said here just before, your God will be your glory. You will have the glory of God. Be one with God. And therefore, you too are just as bright. And so that's why we see both of them being talked about. This is not a contradiction. It's a fulfillment. Um, the days of your sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, and for the display of my splendor. The glory the kings bring in to the new Jerusalem, it's for God's splendor. He's the one that's ultimately glorified through all of this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and it is for the sake of Christ that we do those things. That's the difference between legalism and not legalism. The things I do for Christ or the things I do for me. Am I trying to inherit something, get something? Well, there's your legalism. Am I doing it because, man, God, you are wonderful. You are so awesome. There is grace. There is splendor and glory. God's promises are eternal. I want to read for you Genesis 17, 7, and we're going to look at Genesis a little bit tonight too, but he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Again, it's so easy for us to look at this from a physical perspective and say, oh, remember the, the covenant God gave Abraham? He gave it to Abraham, then he gave it to Isaac, to Jacob, he gave it to the Jews. Oh, and then Jesus came, and now we got a new covenant. No, 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 no. It's the same covenant. Just modified. I was talking here with Craig earlier that um, it, it's kind of like, you know, is it a new covenant, a renewed covenant? We talked about that when we went through Hebrews, and I said, it's new. It's definitely new. When, you know, the priesthood of Melchizedek is not the priesthood of Levi, but... It's like we had a Toyota. I don't know what year. Let's just say it was a 2019 Toyota. And then we bought like a 2022 Toyota, Sienna. And you know, we drove away and it didn't even feel like we were driving a new car. Because everything was the same. But it was a new car. It had a new engine, 
knew all that, but the functions were the same. In a way, that's kind of what the new covenant was, that he put the law in our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 31 tells us exactly what the new covenant will be. And this is the covenant I will make with, their, with, uh, with the descendants of Israel and their, their forefathers at that time. I'm going to put my law in their hearts, write it on their minds. The, the same things, but in a different perspective. And though that may not be a perfect analogy, my point is, is this, is the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17 is finally, eternally fulfilled here in, in Revelation chapter 21. This is the covenant of Abraham that is eternal. I look forward to that day. Revelation 21, 25, moving on. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. If there's no night, there doesn't seem to be a purpose for the moon at all. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. We just talked about that. But there shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah. Does that, you feel that indicates that those things may still exist like outside the gates? Or is it more to say we're done with that? It's possible. I don't know. It's a good question, and I just don't know. Because we have, you know, things like it being abashed and whatnot, it doesn't right. say it's gone. Right. That maybe it is. But the glory in this new Jerusalem, as we talked about before, it's huge. And uh, so I, I don't know. Maybe it is just in the city. It's a good question. But if it is, it's going to be a new one. Not the one that we have scars and Mars on there in the sky now. Isaiah 60, verse 11, agrees with this as well. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring your, you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal possession. You know, I've heard this verse here in Isaiah being talked about with the current situation right now and the hopes that the white hats in our political governments and world, you know, politics, that God wants to bring the wealth of the nations to the church, to the body of Christ. This is part of that kingdom now philosophy that we just have to, you know, work at bringing the kingdom of God to earth, you might say. And it's put into that very physical perspective of, you know, we're going to take all the gold and silver and wealth of all these ungodly politicians and world leaders and God's going to give it to the church and he's going to take away all of our taxes and blah 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 and this verse is used for that I think that's looking at the Bible from a very shallow physical perspective only as we see Revelation talking about the wealth of the nations I don't believe is the gold and the silver God has no need for that the streets are gold he's talking about the glory and the things that you do in Christ now, that's the wealth of the nations. We began this chapter in Revelation, in verse 1, with the, 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 the heavens, the shamayim, the, the waters in the sky. Then we got to verse 6, and it talked about the waters of life, the, the living waters. And now, in verse 27, we're seeing the book of life. Some parallels there. Water has always been a symbol of life. The book of life it belongs to the Lamb, but again, we might look at this too much of a physical perspective. Maybe it is a real physical book, very likely, but I also believe it is Jesus. Just like the tree of life was Jesus. And we're going to see that here in a moment. You know, the Garden of Eden was a picture of our heavenly home. 
The real difference between the garden and our eternal home is that our home is not going to be able to fall. It, it's going to be eternal. Ours in heaven. There will be no evil. Satan was allowed in the garden. He walked among the fiery stones, Ezekiel 28 tells us. Satan is cast into the eternal fire in the new heaven. The Garden of Eden was always meant to be a shadow of what was to come. And we're going to see so much of that. But part of the Garden of Eden was not knowing evil. God didn't want them to know evil. Satan didn't really lie completely there. He was saying, you're going to be like God, knowing both good and evil. Can you imagine not knowing evil? Man, that would be so freeing. Be beautiful. And that's what we have coming up. We're going to see that the water, the living waters, came from the center of the garden. Likewise, that's where it comes here in the New Jerusalem. We see gold was everywhere. Gold is everywhere. We started Revelation showing you all these parallels, walking with God, walking with God. And that's what's happening here in the new heavens. Zechariah gives us some greater detail here. In chapter 14, he says, it will be a unique day. Notice he seems to be talking about a specific day here. Without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Seems to be the new Jerusalem. Half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. From the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate, to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel. To the royal wine presses, it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So, not only are we seeing God's covenant with Abraham coming true, with the land being restored forever, but we see this time it's being called a day. On that day. This fits very well with our earlier discussion about how the Sabbath day of creation is a picture of end times. It foreshadowed a Sabbath day of rest to come. Every time you celebrate the Sabbath and you practice the Sabbath, you are remembering, rehearsing, and looking forward to this day. On that day, it's a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A never, this one will be never ending. God's creation was done on the sixth day, the seventh day, and he rested from all his work. That seems to be the picture of what we're seeing. And then the eighth day is after, I think, that millennial reign, which more is chapter 21 here. Last week, Daniel Joseph talked about this, and I just want to look at just a, one part of his message. So this will be familiar to you. In Genesis 1-5, God called the light day, the darkness he called night, so there was evening and morning the first day. What's interesting is I have had for years many people pointing out this verse saying that a day of creation is not 24 hours, a day can't be a day, because look here on day one, he calls it basically a unique it's not like the first day like he says the second day or the third day or the fourth day it's a day it is the day and because it's worded differently and we see that in the hebrew um i was supposed to test eli uh remember the word for day what is it Morning and evening. Arab and Boker. Very good. See, you got it. So, 
Yeah. Arab and Boker. There was evening, Arab, and there was morning, Boker, the first yom, the first day. Well, Daniel talked about how Daniel Joseph, some say that this day, because it is expressed uniquely from the other creation days, the Jews saw something very unique about this day. They write about it. Josephus wrote about it. Philo wrote about it. There are all kinds of historians who wrote about this because they recognize there's something unique because the Hebrew is making this, highlighting it, saying there's something different about this day. What goes on on this first day? A separation of light and darkness. It's not the sun. It's not the moon. That doesn't come till day four. Even in my book on Genesis, I wrote about this in the sense that this is also very spiritual in separating light and dark, good and evil. The Jews will say that some of this is like Jacob and darkness is like Esau. That the character of these two men was very different. Esau was of the flesh. Jacob lived of the spirit. And that in those cases, the darkness would end up serving the light. Esau would serve Jacob. Ishmael would serve Isaac. Cain and Abel, the same type of thing. One was righteous, one was evil. Saul and David. Many other examples that we could see throughout the scripture where they war with one another. And they say that, that is what is the, this is the battle of good and evil. Now, God is not in danger of losing this battle, but rather, as it was in the beginning, so shall it be in the end. In Deuteronomy, he says that I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is yet to come. He makes known the end from the beginning. And he's trying to tell you that in the end, there is going to be a separation of light and dark, good and evil. If there is just the slightest bit of light in darkness, it pierces it. We're not talking, it is absolutely separated. Look what he did in the Exodus, separating light and dark. It was darkness that could be felt for the Egyptians, the ungodly, but in Goshen they had light. That's what it's going to be like at the end. There will be light. There will be no darkness that's there at all. Now notice when the sun is down, that begins the day here as well. Um, because of this, we see the Jews do a lot of things, like a mikvah, a baptism. When you were done, you would, you would come back into the camp at the end of the day. Uh, you didn't let the sun go down before evening and not allow a body to remain hanging on a cross. Cursed is the man who was hung on a cross after sundown. But, yeah. In Hebrew, where it says this first day, there was the first day, it literally, it doesn't, it's not said well here. It's, first day would be in Hebrew, Yom Rishon. Rishon is, is like first. But that's not what it says. It literally is, Yom Ahad, day one. One day. And that's a better translation because that's exactly what the Hebrew says. And this is why I say that, you know, we have Philo and others that recognize this. Philo of Alexandria wrote about this day and about this passage this way. When light came and darkness retreated and yielded to it. So notice the light comes... We read in Genesis, it separates. But here, it gives the light the power, and the darkness had to succumb to it. Retreated and yielded to it, and boundaries were set in the space between the two. Namely, evening and morning. Then of necessity, the measure of time was immediately perfected, which also the Creator called day. And He called it not the first day, but one day, Yom Achad. And it is spoken of thus, 
an account of the single nature of the world perceptible only by the intellect, which has a single nature. Basically, he's foreshadowing the day of the Lord. It wasn't a day, but the day. Okay, uh, I should say first day, it's, it's the day. Here he goes on and he says, He allotted each of the six days to one of the portions of the whole, taking out the first day, which he does not even call the first day, that it may not be numbered with the others. But entitling it one, he names it rightly, perceiving in it and ascribing to it the nature and appellation of the limit. Basically saying, he's separating it apart, giving it a special place, a special position here, and kind of glorifying it. That it wouldn't be numbered with the others. Seeing it this being noteworthy, many of the people believe that this is Jesus. And in a sense, his return. When the day of the Lord comes again. That this is a foreshadowing of that day. The day of the Lord. Josephus says in the Antiquities of the Jews of this, this this passage. The name he gave to one was night, the other he called day, and he named the beginning of light and the time of rest, evening and morning, and this was indeed the first day, but Moses said it was one day. Josephus recognizes this, this significance. Now, what did Josephus see it as? The same thing that the, the rabbis of today talk about it being. The day of atonement. It's the day, one day, not the first, but a single, specific, important, set-apart day. They say the Day of Atonement. Here's what uh, the rabbis of today will tell you. There was evening refers to Esau. There was morning refers to Jacob. One day for the Holy One, blessed be he, gave him one day. And what is that day? The Day of Atonement. The sages recognized this unusual way of setting this part, this day apart. And what amazes me about it is they will connect this to Isaac and the altar, and they see this as messianic. I do too. I just see that Yeshua Jesus was the Messiah. But they see it taking place or a foreshadowing, a picture of the Day of Atonement. I don't think they're far off. Because that is exactly what we have seen Judgment Day in chapter 20. And after Judgment Day, after the Day of Atonement, begins our uh, tabernacles and then the eighth day, which is eternal. That picture is seen quite well. Zechariah says... Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no lights. The light will diminish. It shall be one day. Isn't that interesting? Same in the Hebrew, it's the same word. Yom Achad. Not like Chayom, the day, or Bayom, in the day, but literally one day. The very way it's worded in Genesis. And here, this is talking about end times. I think the scriptures are trying to connect, as it was in the beginning, so shall it be. It goes on, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. And by the way, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but my Father who is in heaven. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half toward the western sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. 
in that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. So to clarify, do you think this verse, this section refers to the millennial reign or the final reign after that? This seems to be the, I think that they're so closely connected that, but I think technically, if I'm going to be nitpicky, afterwards. And, but oftentimes it's kind of just like sweeps through, kind of like when you're reading two verses in scripture, but you just covered 400 years of time. But doesn't, are we talking about a new earth at that point, though? Like, this doesn't yeah. jive with that to me, because we still have our eastern and western sea. You're still going to have, as you'll see, directions, uh, right. four corners, you're going to have all of that. So the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, I think, is going to have waters, right. mountains, all of that, just like the Garden of Eden did. says there will be no ocean. Yeah, it seems to be no sea. However, the word sea, the Hebrew sea, sea is like the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a little different, so you can't think oceans there. So that ends chapter 21. We're going to get into chapter 22 here tonight. And we see here, in the very first verse, he showed me the pure river of the water of life. Kind of jumping off of what Zechariah is talking about here. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Just like I told you in Garden of Eden, where does the river of life come from? Same spot. Clear as crystal. Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9 says, They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Sounds very much like what we just read in chapter 21. Psalm 46, verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Seems to be the new Jerusalem. The holy place where the Most High dwells. So who is this he? And he showed me the pure river of the water of life. Remember, chapter breaks aren't in the original. It's the same angel that we saw in chapter 21, the angel that was in charge of the seven plagues. We saw it at the very beginning of chapter 21. Um, the center of this, you know, the throne of God, the center of the city, it seems, Remember that there were 12 tribes camped around the tabernacle. As in heaven, there will be 12 tribes around. There were gates that you had to enter and gates for those people. So we're seeing that parallel. And just kind of keep that in mind as we go. But Joel 3.18 says, In that day the mountains will drip new wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the ravines of Judah will run with water, a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of acacias. A fountain coming out of the Lord's house, that's the temple, that's you. And out of you will flow streams of living water. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. We already looked at that, so I'm not going to read it again, but just to remind you. In John 4.14, he basically prophesied Jesus saying, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We often think that Jesus is a living water, so we just sit here with our mouths open, taking in the, the waters of life. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Bless me. Thank you, Jesus. Bless me. But notice, it comes out from you. Because he put it in you. And if you are the temple, you are the house of God. That is why it says here in Joel, a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. The glory of the nations is in and proceeds out of from the center of the garden. The center of the throne the center of the city. 
Ezekiel probably gives us the best description of this. It's just kind of interesting. So we're going to take some time to look at this, but this is in chapter 47. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. This is the new temple that is talked about in Ezekiel 40 through 48. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits led me through water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that could not I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, which it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there became fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engelane. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, which is usually scripturally Mediterranean. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. A lot there. I'm not going to pretend to understand all of it. I've heard messages that talk about the Holy Spirit and just, you know, deeper, the further you go out and just the Spirit being outpoured. I don't know. All I know is that this seems to be the trees of life. Notice many trees versus a single tree of life. We'll kind of talk a little bit more about this here. In John 7, this is the eighth day of Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk more about this later, but it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood crying out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow living water. This was flowing from the center of the throne in Ezekiel. And it gives life wherever it goes. I find it interesting that the salt remains. That you are the salt of the earth. That we are to be the one that flavors. You are to be living waters to people. You are to be the ones that are going out and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Now oftentimes that seems to be, hey, Jesus loves you. Don't forget with the gospel comes repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You are to be going out and telling this world, repent, stop sinning, for Jesus is Lord. Verse 2 of chapter 22 says, In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Kind of sounds like what we just read in Ezekiel. But wait a minute, on either side was the tree of life. That's multiple trees, but yet it's a singular tree here. Maybe the same root. Big tree. I, I love 
just seeing God's handiwork in his creation and trees and things today. You know, studies have been done showing that trees, they, they know where the water is at. And you can put water in a PVC pipe and they will go towards it. They will find it. The roots will find it. And in recent years, they've even found that not just trees, but other plants and whatnot, they work some, they're communicating. Now, New Age and all of that, that's going to put it together like, oh, they're like us. No, they're not. God created this in a very unique way. They communicate in different ways. They don't have spirits. They don't have souls. But if there, is, there are two trees in the forest and one tree doesn't have enough water, oftentimes this tree senses that and redirects its roots to allow this other tree to get to the water. There's spiritual messages that we could do. And, and there's so many of these symbiotic relationships that we can talk about with, with corn to you name it, virtually every living thing. But those are all pictures and patterns of what we were created to be too. To be worried about the other tree next to us. Not just, hey, well, I'm in, so let me go live my life. I don't care about that guy down the street. Who cares? He's going to hell. I'm not. That's not the way we were created to be. It says, on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits. Twelve. For the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles, who knows? Each tree yielding its fruit every month. Every month it yields. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now people will say, wait a minute, healing? That can I thought there was no pain, no suffering, or anything like that in heaven. Well, you're right, there isn't. The word healing there is it's not like because you're sick and now you're going to be healed. The Greek word, it literally means it brings health and wholeness. In other words, it's a sustaining process, not a healing process. Not a making better, but a keeping good. Remember, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? When they sinned, God kicked them out and would not allow them access to the tree of life. Why? What's that? It would sustain them. That's what the Scriptures say. Or else they could live forever. As it was in the beginning, so shall it be. All I know... I find it interesting. I love the, how the book of Enoch talks about the tree of life. The, the book of Enoch talks about its fragrance and it just draws you into it. And I feel like it's going to be like that. That's about as much as I can know. I, I would go back and read the book of Enoch to see its description of the tree of life. I think you'll find it fascinating. Um, just it's life-giving qualities. Also, seven hills, seven mountains that are there, which I find interesting. But that's about as much as I can say. I just don't know. I don't want to speculate beyond that. Um, we also, also have to look at this tree of life, though, as what I think Scripture pointed to being as Jesus as well. It is Jesus that brings healing. And I don't just mean I've got a sore foot. He brings healing as in wholeness, sustaining, completing power in His Holy Spirit. Today, we often look to Jesus just from the physical perspective of heal me, I've got cancer, help me, Lord. I'm not saying that sometimes He doesn't, but let me tell you, sometimes His answer is no. And that's a good answer. Because he knows best. But I think what he's more talking about than the physical is that very spiritual sustaining power that we see in heaven in the tree of life. I will not let 
them, anyone snatched them out of my hand. I have not lost any of them that you gave me. This aspect of sustaining you, preserving you to the end, that's, I think, more of how we're supposed to look at the healing power of God. Not throwing away the fact that he does heal in the physical, but I think the bigger portion of this is the spiritual. That it is him that gives eternal life. I also find it interesting that in modern days, if you go to a synagogue, they'll have their big Torah scrolls. And the handles are, are basically the tree of life, is what they call them. They associate it with the Word of God. Jesus, the Word of God, the tree of life. I just love that. So this tree is an ongoing blessing, keeping us in perfect health without any chance of becoming sick. Nothing damaging can exist in heaven, and that's what we're seeing in both of these. Not that, oh, I'm starting to get sick, I better go get my fruit from the tree, but rather a continual reliance upon Jesus. A continual... It, I, I don't even like that word reliance because in our flesh we look at it as if there's something wrong and so I have to rely on Him to get rid of a bad thing. This is just, I love it. It's almost like I, I look at a marriage relationship. I, I continually rely on my wife, not you know to cook and clean, but just for her presence. And I, I'm, I feel whole in her presence. We don't have to talk. We don't have to be doing anything fun. I don't even have to be yeah. in the same building. Your wife's a man. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, no. <laughs> Your wife has to talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't get to. <laughs> Love you, Tara. <laughs> How'd you get the keys to my bus? <laughs> anyway. I think that's what this is. That you want to be with them and that closeness to the tree of life is just that presence and a wholeness and a completeness that is brought about because of it. So I'm okay with it being that we need him to fix us because we're, we're sinners. But we won't be anymore. You're not. You are, I think even what the scriptures say in Corinthians, it says we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations now, but the problem is in our tent. You have a new spirit. You are a new creation, but this tent still is tattered and broken up. But there is a day coming when this tent is gone and the immortal becomes uh, the mortal becomes immortal. There will be no need for that sort of healing ever again, because a new creation is perfect, and that's you know the picture of the Garden of Eden too. Verse 3, Revelation 22, There shall be no more curse. And there's part of just what we were talking about. This body is cursed. Your spirit is not, but your body is. Still lives in a cursed fallen world, but there will be no more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. The name of God on your forehead. Again, the contrast or the opposite of the mark of the beast being on your hand and forehead, now you have the name of God on your forehead. Why? Because the name of God, the Word of God, is, as we see in Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament, you were to put it on your hand and on your forehead. And here we see that was simply a picture of eternity. And I think that being on your forehead is a picture of the mind. That His name, the very essence and presence of God is in your mind constantly. You will never be able to wander and stray from that. 
I mean, I wish I could do that today. There are days that I'm thinking about God, you know, a lot of the day, but there's always moments when I get distracted. Imagine never being distracted. Job gives us a little deeper understanding. He says this in Job 33, verse 25. Then, in his, then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Being restored to your righteous state in the pre-fall Garden of Eden type situation is the closest. I think it's even better than the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of Eden seems to be a little bit closer to our understanding than I think what we're reading here. But just like in the Garden of Eden, we have to remember, we've talked about this before, but it was the Garden of Eden. Eden wasn't the... They were placed in the Garden. They got kicked out of the Garden, but they were still in Eden. Likewise, we have the New Jerusalem, and it seems like outside of that. Yeah, I, I mean, think about Adam and Eve walking with, with God in the Garden. In the, they loved being in his presence. He was there. They, they had life. And they were created to even work. Work was just a blessing. Yeah, you know, if you like what you do, work is not a curse. What was the bit on Zachariah about there's still fishermen? Yeah, there's still fishermen. There's all of those kind of things, which tend to see that fish are not living creatures, according to the biblical definition, possibly. But, but anyway, the point being is we see that life goes on, but it's in perfection. That's the way it was in the garden. I think that's the way it's going to be in heaven. We always, I have people say, oh, heaven, I, honestly, it sounds kind of boring. I mean, worshiping God all day long. They picture that as I got to go to church and sit in church all day long. Well, first of all, you haven't experienced real great worship then. And second of all, it's not like that. That is, it's more like Bible study. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope that this is that good. I don't know. I, uh, anyway. Point being is it's going to be amazing. Um, Ezekiel 48 seems to agree with this as well, where it says in verse 35, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. I love the fact, too, that they shall see his face. In uh, Exodus 33, verse 20, it said no one can see God's face and live. And the reason, I think, is because in the flesh, in this mortal body, we are sinful. And there can be no unholiness in the presence of God's holiness. But when we are made new, this is why the high priest could only enter God's presence in the most holy place once a year after being sacrificed. And even then there were rules of the smoke and, you know, don't touch this and that. And, but... All of this kind of stuff was there. All of the sin, the curse, is taken away. So now we get to see God face to face. That's going to be wonderful. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that is an exact fit to what we're talking about, but it, it does fit. Even Moses was kept from seeing God's face in its full glory. We see here in Exodus 33, verse 20 and following, You cannot see my face, nor for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you shall see my back, but my face must not be seen. Moses talked with God, walked with God, and yet he still couldn't see because he was still in the flesh. Revelation tells us the day is coming when we even get better than that. Now, some people may look here at Numbers 12 and say, isn't this a contradiction? Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. 
clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Context here, Miriam and Aaron were upset with Moses complaining about him, so God came and basically rebukes them here on this Numbers verse here. God came to Moses face to face, not in dreams or riddles, but like his presence was there, but he could only, they could only see the form. We also see the Bible tells us that when Moses would enter the tent of meeting, it would be filled with a cloud, the presence of God, the Shekinah or Shekinah glory of God. And so that cloud shielded him. It would be like seeing God dimly through a glass, you might say, as the New Testament would say. That he could see the form, and yes, I'm here face to face, but he couldn't see clearly. You will see God's face clearly. That's exciting. And people that want to study this book, I don't get it. When Jacob wrestled with God, he says, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. There's another one you might say is a contradiction. However, I think in that case, God was not in his full glory. He came down as a man. The disciples saw God face to face and Jesus too, but it wasn't in his full glory. I don't understand how all of the rules of that work, but I know that there's just a difference. A difference to what you go, oh, can you imagine walking with Jesus and what those disciples? Yeah, it'll even be better. Far better. Last verse that we're going to cover is verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lord gives them light, no night, no, nor light of the sun. Um, Job 29, when I smiled at them, they scarcely believed that the light of my face was precious to them. Job 33, verse 30, turn back his soul from the pit that the light of life may shine on him. Psalm 4, 6, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Psalm 44, 3, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, for you loved them. Just as at creation there was light on day one without the sun, because God's face shines upon him. Yevercha Adonai, Right? Blessed are you, O Lord God. Uh, King of the universe, or the, the Numbers verse, rather, that talks about, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you shalom or peace. Psalm 56, 13, For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Psalm 90, verse 8. I mean, I could go all day on this just about. Isaiah 2, 5, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Luke 11, See to it that when the light within you is, er, that the light within you is not darkness. If your whole body is full of light, Jesus, no part of it is dark. It will be completely lighted as when a light of lamp shines on you. First, or John 1, 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 8, 12, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There can be no question what this light is here in Revelation. It's Jesus. None other than not just our light, but our very life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So with that, we are going to close. Hopefully that gives you some things to think about, about this new heaven and this new earth, and to, to give God praise and glory for this. This is the goal of Revelation, not the other parts that you think about. Even though I think you saw the good things in judgment before. Don't forget that. God is coming not to judge 
you necessarily, I mean, you will be, but through the eyes of Christ, but all the evil things that are going on, that's for the ungodly. You celebrate that day. Everybody focuses on that part. But this is the part you're supposed to be focusing on. This is the part that makes you go, I don't care, kill me now. <laughs> Instead, we're like, oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Because you haven't focused. So, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You that You have given us such abundant blessings, not just here, but already in heaven. We are already co-heirs with Christ. That we are inheriting the kingdom of God. And we have read a little bit about our inheritance. We've gone here tonight to the lawyer and, and they've read the will in testament. And we see what is has been granted us. Let us be patient. But Lord, put that excitement in us just as if this was in the physical world. Let us realize that this is truth. Not even the physical, but the, the greatness of being in your presence and in your light, in your love. No more suffering, no more evil, no more curse. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.